<laughs> Amen. That was great. Uh, man, I, I miss being in that room with you guys. I love listening to you guys on online, but it is going to be so nice to be back together. We had a little leadership meeting here after church this uh, just yesterday on my back porch, and a lot of people were here, and we sang worship songs led by Katie Bogle, and it was just so nice to be in the room or be on the deck outside in the sunshine, singing with people is really cool. Anyway, um, uh, after church today, I want to make sure you guys all know you're invited over to my house. Uh, just come right up the driveway to the backyard. We're going to be out in the backyard or on the deck. And uh, you can bring uh, lunch for yourself or you can bring something to grill on our grill or you could bring s- some food or some drink to share with people if you want. And uh, we're going to go from about, you know, you can come anytime after church till about 1.30. Uh, then we have to clear out because it is my two daughters' birthday. They have the same birthday, three years apart. And um, we're going to be celebrating that later today with them. But um, so anyway, that you're, you're invited to do that. It's 214 Lippincott Avenue in Ardmore. 214 Lippincott Avenue in Ardmore. It's a one-block street, uh, one block over from Cricket Avenue in between Spring and County Line Road. So uh, love to have you. Anyway, uh, just a few announcements as we get started. Parents, uh, ad nauseum, you're hearing these announcements every week, right? Parents, uh, Kim, Kim is uh, sending out your kids' curriculum on Saturdays uh, before uh, Sunday service. Um, she is having some computer problems. We don't know what's wrong with it. So, you know, sometimes that's a little bit difficult to get all that out to you, but we're trying. Uh, if you're not on that list, uh, Email admin at 68.org uh, to get placed in our system, and uh, somebody will make sure you do that. Uh, spiritual Mentors, again, email spiritualmentors at 68.org and uh, get somebody to you can meet with via Zoom or even in person if you're willing to do that. Um, and um, they can help you walk through, listen to you, listen to where the Holy Spirit is leading you, help you identify where where God has taken you in this moment, they can give you some new fresh ideas to uh, to spark your walk uh, and your your uh, quiet times and things like that. So that's available. Uh, again, uh, giving. Uh, it, it, if you remember, we are phasing out Simple Give, and we are moving all of our giving, uh, our online reoccurring gifts to Breeze. If you can do that, the the directions are on the website, on the giving page on the website. Uh, So if you've been giving a reoccurring gift through Simple Give, please delete that and move it over to Breeze. Um, You can find all those directions. And also you can find directions for how to set up your text-to-give option at 610-590-9199. Just text the word give, and it'll lead you through it. But there's also directions on the website. You can also give via Venmo at 68 Little Strip Vineyard, and uh, that'll get to us. And um, you can send a check to the church, 1116 Lancaster Avenue, Bryn Mawr, PA, 19010. And that's it. That's the announcements. We're done. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's going to be a hot one today, 95 degrees. So, goodness, I don't know when this is going to stop. Um, let me pray for us as we get started into this. I, let me let me just say, too, this on, on our little slide that advertises this series, it's called All Peoples. And um, it's... Uh, 
says it's a seven-week series. It's it's turned into, I know, at least an eight-week eight week series, and it might even go farther than that. We're not sure. Anyway, but that's the ADHD mind. That's the mind of Jason Gwines, the craziness of it. Uh, so hang on for the ride. Here we go. I'm going to pray us into this. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your steadfastness, uh, for your promises that never change. That if there's anything that, if there's at least one thing in this world that feels solid, it's you. And everything around us feels shit like it's shifting sand right now, that we can't really, we take a step here and our foot sinks, and we take a step there and our foot sinks. And we just pray, praise you, Father God, that you are the one thing that we can hold on to that you are never changing, that you, you, you love us the same you did way back when in history to now to way into the future. And we, we, we love that about you. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that today. So we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have to say uh, to us today and that uh, everything that is about you would stick and everything that is Jason would fall away. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, I want to, uh, you know, isn't it funny when you are talking to somebody and, <laughs> and, and, and you, you're only able to get half your sentence out or part of your sentence out before they react and they misunderstand what you're saying and, and they get really upset, you know, or, 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 or they take it a different way that you meant to say it. And if you had just been allowed to finish your thought, finish your sentence, right, it would have made sense and there would not be a problem, Right. Well, I want to suggest to you that we do the same with God's word quite often. We really do. For instance, verse 1 of Psalm 67 is a really, really nice prayer. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, right? And that's a really nice thought. I love that thought. It's a healthy desire to live in God's grace and live in his blessing and his light. That is for sure, right? But to stop there would create a people that are addicted to blessing and lacking in purpose. It really would. We can't neglect verse 2 of Psalm 67, which says, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. And there there it is again, all nations, right? So God's glory, God's mission, right? See, verse 1 by itself is all, it can become all about me. Uh, but you add in verse 2, and it's about God and the salvation of others. It, you know, that connector phrase, so that, connotes a purpose for us, right? We're, and so we're to understand that blessing is for a reason, and it comes with responsibility and purpose, God's glory and God's mission, right? That's what we're supposed to be about. So our thoughts... If, if, you, if you know me at all, if you've listened to sermons from me at all, um, you, you know that our thoughts should automatically go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 when we listen to Psalm 67, 1 and 2, right? His last command, our first concern, where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And actually that means as you are going about life, as you are going through life, right? Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? That's a that I want that that passage 
those few verses, 18 through 20 of Matthew 28, I want that emblazoned in your forehead. I want, I want that to be the forefront of your mind all the time. So I bring it up quite often. And, and if you read that, it's the same concept as 60, Psalm 67, 1 and 2. What we receive from Jesus, we turn around and pour it out to all the nations of the earth. And remember, not nations of political boundaries. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about nations, people groups of cultural linguistic distinction. All the glorious, diverse, God-authored ethnic groups of the world that we've been looking at in Revelations chapter 7 at the end of days, standing before the throne and worshiping Jesus. Amen to that. That is a beautiful picture. And so it is a mistake to read only Psalm 67, verse 1, without adding in verse 2. We, we don't get the full picture. We need to let God finish the sentence, right? So our purpose is clear, and it has to do with all that we've been talking about over past weeks, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God while we live out our, our purpose and our calling in the Great Commission, Right? And that is both an individual and a corporate call, which is why unity, and this is really a thread that's run through all these sermons uh, from this series, unity has been such a central concept to our discussions, right? The call to obedience, which comes from faith, as guided by what we learn in the Bible, under the leading of the Holy Spirit and the shared conviction of the church. Now, Paul speaks of this stuff also in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And let me just read that to you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, notice how Paul views himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised when? When Jesus came in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Listen, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, remember, the only Holy Scriptures Paul had at that time was the Old Testament, right? Regarding his son, verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to what? So we received something, grace and apostleship, right? To call all the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are basically just all the other non-Jewish people groups of the world. So to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith uh, for his name's sake. Again, God's glory, God's mission, we receive, we pour it back out. Right? So firstly, notice right there that in verse 1, Paul sees that all he is having been gloriously hijacked to serve Christ. He regards himself as con- consecrated, as set apart for that purpose. No longer is it building his nest egg that important or, you know, his career, you know, he's a, the best tent maker or whatever. I, like everything comes under that umbrella of serving Christ. That's, that's his thing. That's his purpose, and he knows it. And it's the same for us, right? Secondly, notice in verses 2 through 4 that this gospel call to bless the nations did not start with Paul, Paul's words in Romans, or even in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, or even back in Psalm 67, 1 and 2. 
All of these passages are simply, they simply reflect what has been preached to God's people from the very beginning. It, there has been a consistent covenantal relationship and a call to go and bless the nations of the world with the gospel by God's people. Our goal has always been to live out of the gospel of grace, modeling the heart of God to all peoples, bringing them into unity under under him, into the body of Christ, into, into, well, at the time then, into the nation of Israel, right? Now, to do so, we've got to understand the complete story of God as seen in the scriptures, right? To know, to know the gospel of grace has been God's intention throughout history. Just trying to make sure I'm not too loud. <laughs> I'm getting a little animated. Anyway, but the problem is, all right, the problem is that when we think of the Old Testament, we think about the law, right? And when we think about the New Testament, what do we think about? We think about Jesus. We think about the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus Christ, right? So our, our sometimes our limited understanding creates a co- conflicting view of the image of God between the Old and the New Testament. They almost seem like two different things, two different beings in a sense. So here's the question. Is there a consistent message of the gospel of grace running all throughout the Old and the New Testaments? Well, there is according to me, <laughs> but, but maybe more importantly, according to people like Paul, right? And Jesus and everybody else that, that, were, that were writing the scriptures. But most Christians uh, tend to view the, the scriptures something like this. Number one, right? Number one, God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect harmony with him. I agree with that point, right? Number two, the fall happened. They chose to turn away right? Sin was born into the world at that point. I agree with that, right? Uh, number three, God sat back at that moment, and I don't really agree with point three, by the way. God sat back at that moment, and he scratches his head, and he said, well, that didn't work, so I'll just give them this law to live by, and if they live right, then I'll accept them, and if they don't live up to my law, then I'll cut them off. I don't agree with that. Then number four, when he figured out that that also wouldn't work because nobody was really living up to the standards of the law, he then set, decided to send Jesus as a payment for the sin that was revealed in us by the very law that he put into place. That's how people view the scriptures. And in this thinking, God is far from being sovereign, far from being omnipotent, and Jesus is simply an afterthought or divine damage control in a bad situation. And I don't think that that's what it is at all. We view the Old and New Testaments as separate, disjointed stories with no unifying theme. But unity under the gospel of grace has always been the central theme. The gospel can be seen throughout all of the scriptures. And Jesus said the scriptures speak of him, right? And he was referring also to the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament. He was speaking the words of part of the New Testament right then in his life, right? So he didn't have the the New Testament at all. He He was speaking about the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul and others saw the gospel of grace all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as well. They didn't have the New Testament, you know, at that time. They And they preached the gospel. Maybe this is even more important. They preached the gospel of grace by way of the Old Testament. 
You think about Timothy when he gave that great speech and then he was stoned, right? You know, he used the Old Testament. You know, we write a will in order that when we die, the conditions of that will are carried out to our satisfaction. And Paul makes that same argument in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. This is our central passage today. So if you want to turn anywhere in a Bible, go to Galatians 3, 15 through 25 right now, and we'll, we'll be reading in that in a second. But in that passage, he basically says that, that there that, just as with a human contract, like, like, like a lease or a will. I, I rent out rooms in my house, so I, I have a lease that was made up by a lawyer and, you know, me and the renter sign, right? So the lawyer mediated between me and my, um, my renter, right? And so just as like a, a human contract, where like a lease or a will, where nothing can be added or taken away. You can't change that lease once it's signed, right? It's the same with God's promise. But what promise is Paul referring to in Galatians chapter 3? That's the big question, right? So I want to use Galatians 3, 15 through 25, to give us a glimpse into the unity of Scripture, which communicates that we've always been blessed by the gospel of grace for the purpose of blessing all peoples with it. This is the theme of the whole Bible, right? God's glory, God's mission, right? So, starting in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 3, going to verse 20 at first, it says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case, right? In other words, this is a sealed deal, right? This is what he's about to talk about. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ, right? So Abraham, way back when, uh, by the way, we're going to be see Abraham spelled Abram and Abraham because his name changed after a while. So just know that. But way back when, and then Christ comes from his lineage, right? That's what he's saying. Verse 17, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Verse 19, What then was the purpose of the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, meaning Jesus, the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. That's a very strange statement at the end there. So it's easy to see what Paul refers to when he's talking about a human covenant or a human contract, right? A will or a contract with a mediator between two parties, right? Well, Paul is comparing this to God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and also in Genesis 15, which we'll also look look at. But he says that that promise or that covenant was made by one party, God alone. Abram made no promises at the time. And we'll see that. That from the beginning, from the very beginning, way back then, 
Salvation and hope have always fully depended on God and not us having to measure up to him or attain anything or earn our status with him. And that, by the way, is uber good news, right? It really is. So later we'll look at Genesis 15, but the promise starts in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And just listen as I read that. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. So notice he's moving Abraham away from people familiar to foreign peoples, other nations, right? Um, Go from your, your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Excuse me. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All nations, all people groups of the earth will be blessed through you. There it is again, right? Now, in Galatians 3, as Paul refers to the promise in Genesis 12 and also in Genesis 15, there are some very confusing things. Paul's sometimes a confusing guy. For instance, this idea of seed... Uh, with a capital S, as we see in Genesis 12, verse 7. We also see it in chapter 13, verse 15, and chapter 20, verse, 24, verse 7. But Paul says uh, there, says that there were four parts to this promise. You know, so that, by the way, that seed he equates to Christ, right? That's, that's a big deal. And Paul says that there were four parts to that promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Number one was the seed or the offspring in the singular, meaning Christ. Number two, that they would, they would get land. Uh, they would be blessed with land. Number three, that Israel would be blessed that his descendants would be numerous, like Abraham's descendants would be numerous. And number four, that Israel would be a blessing to all nations. He was blessed to be a blessing, right? So God promised these four things, making it very clear to Abraham that the seed referring to the Messiah would come through his lineage, right? And Abraham, was, you know, at the time, if you, if you know this, he was just a guy. He was just a man chosen by God. Right? Standing out there in the desert, maybe, or whatever, wherever he was. He was an Iraqi. You know, he was called out of the Ur of Chaldeans. He, he was a pagan who probably worshiped the local deity. He, he didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have the temple. The church hadn't started, you know, for, you know, a long time later. He didn't have sound doctrine. He had maybe only a few creation or flood stories to go from. But that's it. And God called him, right? God called him. Which says to us, right now, that all anyone has ever needed for salvation is what theologians would call passive righteousness. Passive meaning you just sit back and get it, right? Passive righteousness. Receiving God's grace by faith in his promise to us. As compared to active righteousness, where I have to earn salvation, right? Like I have to do all this stuff. I have to live perfectly to earn my salvation. There's nowhere in the Bible does it call for active righteousness. We in no way actively earn our relationship with God by how well we live up to expectations from him. Now, does he have expectations as his people? Of course he does. But that is not how we gain salvation or relationship with him. Now, listen, this is important. There is a difference 
in believing in God. Now, I know a lot of people that would say, sure, yeah, I believe in God. I believe there's a God. I believe in God. Right? There's a real big difference in believing in God and believing God. Take the in out from between the two words, right? Believe God. He reveals himself in the scriptures. He reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals himself in creation. And we simply accept and believe his promises just like Abraham did. Now, the other confusing thing in this ver- in, in, in Galatians 3 is verse 20 when Paul says, a mediator doesn't just represent one party, but God is one. Now, that's confusing because a contract or a covenant is always made between two parties. And Paul is suggesting here that this one wasn't, that it was made by one, God alone. Paul says God's promise is by him alone. <clears throat> so we need to gain a little bit of clarity on that. The late R.C. Sproul, wonderful guy, passed away a few years ago, I think it is now. But he was often asked, if you had to have just one life's verse, what would it be? And it's strange since he, for him to be asked that, he said, he, you know, he would want all of Scripture. He, he doesn't just want one verse. But if he had to pick one, he would pick this really weird verse, Genesis fifteen seventeen, which says this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. That's his favorite verse. That's the one that he would have if he couldn't have any others, right? Now, that's kind of strange. Why not Psalm 67.1, like, oh, bless me and let me walk in your light, Lord. You know, why not Psalm 67.1? Why, why, why would he pick this weird verse? Well, to understand Galatians chapter 3 with this one party idea, we have to understand Genesis 15 verse 17, which speaks of the covenant process or a covenant ceremony that God was undertaking with Abraham at that time. Now, in ancient times, if one king conquered another king, they would cut a covenant together in order to bring peace between the two. And so they would – this is a gross ceremony, (laughs) but they would sacrifice a bunch of animals. They would cut them in half, and then they would lay them opposite each other in in a long aisle. Right, this like blood, long bloody aisle, and then the two parties, the two kings, would walk down the middle of that aisle, uh, and while they were walking down the aisle, they would recite their promise uh, to each other as a covenant, an unbreakable covenant. Right, and what they were saying to each other was, "If I break our covenant, if I break our promise, may I end up like these two dead, the, these these dead animals that were walking in between." So two parties cutting a covenant promise, a contract for future relationship. And if either party broke the promise, the terms were nullified, right? Now, Abraham, in these ancient days, he would have understood this ceremony. He would have been familiar with it, and he would have understood it. So God used this ceremony that he borrowed to communicate his gospel of grace by making a covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring into the future. So let's read around Genesis 15, 17, starting in verse 9. It says this, So the Lord said to him, 
bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham, or Abram, brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut a nap. I guess they were too small. I don't know. And then birds, of, this is a weird little detail they add in. Then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove, drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram, now listen to this. This is super duper important. Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So he's off to the side to sleep, right? Then verse 17, this is uh, R.C. Sproul's favorite verse. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. It went like it just went down the aisle, right? Uh, verse 18, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And I'll, I'll end there. But so God cut a covenant with Abraham here, right? But the interesting thing is, if you, if you notice, when it came time to walk the aisle, as normally would be done, two parties would walk that aisle. Abraham was in a deep sleep off to the side. So God, by himself, represented by the smoking fire pot and the burning torch, walked the aisle, cutting the covenant as one party with Abraham and his descendants. What God was saying is, I make this covenant with you as one party. The whole covenant is therefore based on my word and my promise by grace and not your ability to hold up your end of the bargain. It's not based on two parties' behavior because he knew we couldn't do it, right? God is saying, if I fail at this, I'm placing all of my deity on the line and you don't have to do anything but receive it and believe the promise. Receive the promise, believe the promise. The gospel of grace is revealed right here from the very beginning. So, to summarize what Paul's saying, he's saying that God chooses us not based on our merit, just like he chose Abraham, this old Iraqi pagan, (laughs) right? Abraham's, don't you love that word pagan? It's just such a cool word, right? Anyway, Abraham simply believed God's promise. That's it. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, what does scripture say? Question mark, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then in verse 13, the same chapter, it says it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes just by faith. That's it. And so when we hear that Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he took away our sin, that he became cursed on that tree, that he placed his righteousness upon us, we just believe it and receive it as a blessing. Grace happened on the cross, and it has nothing to do with what I do to get right with God, even now, just like it didn't with Abraham. So Paul adds very adeptly in Galatians three seventeen and 18 that the law, he says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance, important word, depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Amen to that, right? So to view our relationship, like I talked about um, 
in those four points in the beginning of the sermon, to view our relationship with God through the the lens of the Old Testament based only on the law, you know, as I outlined there, it takes, remember, that takes two parties. One party sets the standard as the sovereign king, the conquering king, and the other keeps it as the vassal king, the conquered king, right? But the law, notice, came 430 years after the promise. The law can't nullify the promise because God's word cannot be broken. God promised, he cut, he kept the covenant of grace with his people, not based on anything that we do. So you think of it this way. Paul used the word inheritance in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 18 of Galatians. He said, if I'm prom, and, and now, if I'm promised an inheritance by my father and his will, I don't do anything but believe that he promised it. And I simply receive it as his child. That's it. I receive the promise and I believe it. But if somebody comes to me and they say, you know, I don't have any descendants and I'm going to die soon. And if you take care of me well enough, then I will give you an inheritance. That is a two-party contract that is based on performance. It's a conditional statement, right? God promised to Abraham and likewise to us that we are his children by grace through faith alone even way back then, thousands of years ago. That all that is his is ours by grace through faith. The promise came first. It cannot be broken. He never said, you, you, if you obey my law, then you will have an inheritance. If you obey my law, then you will be accepted by me. He never said that. The promise depends on God. Therefore, it's based on a parent-child relationship, not on performance. And anybody that's got kids knows that they don't always perform well. Right? Except for my children. My children are absolutely perfect. Yeah, right. Anyway. But grace precedes the law. Grace precedes the law. Paul then says in Galatians 3.19, he says, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, to whom the promise referred had come. Then in verses 22 through 25, he says, but the scripture, like going through puberty, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. I just lost half of you when I said that. I'm sorry. (laughs) But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith uh, should be revealed. And then verse 24, so the law was put in in charge, listen to that, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Some of you know that Kim and I take in border children, kids kids that get caught coming over the border, and, and they, you know, instead of being locked up in a facility, we take them in as temporary foster parents, right? And in doing so for a short time, we become their sort of guide and teacher and parent in life. Kim especially, m- much more so than I, fulfills that role of what we would call a pedagogue, an old word that we hardly ever use anymore, uh, of a pedagogue in a more complete way with them. Now, I say that only to show, to to point out that Paul refers to the law as our pedagogue in the, in the, in the original language. Uh, in other words, one that is charged with the education, the discipleship, uh, 
this, the discipline, uh, the protection, and the leading of a child in life, right? A pedagogue inputs moral values into this child, which guide the child on into adulthood. And the law, he says, is like this, leading us into an adult life of faith, revealing God's moral standard to his children, convicting us of sin all along the way. But at some point, the child grows up and is released from the hand of the pedagogue, but those lessons learned carry on into adulthood, right? Scripture tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts, that we naturally know right from wrong in many cases. Now, we also know that Scripture says that our hearts are twisted. They, they can fool us. They can, you know, they're, they're deceitful, you know, things like that. So the law, more clearly laid out and written out in the Scriptures, acts as a pedagogue leading us to Christ and convicting us on what God's standard of living is or how we live our lives is. The law reveals sin in my heart, and it takes me by the hand, and it leads me to understand my need for grace. The law is like dad's moral directives, which are healthy and good for us while we live under his care, reminding us every day of our need for him. Uh, they're, they're, they're there for our protection. They're there to give us full and lasting and good life, right? Uh, by the way, we can't just choose not to sin. Have you ever, I mean, you can't just choose not to sin. That's a superficial view of sin. Because sin is not just a one-time thought or action. It's a condition of humanity. You know, it's ground into our DNA. And Paul's very clear that we are prisoners locked away in our sinful nature, awaiting uh, release, which comes through faith in Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ, and we are transformed by grace daily as we learn to live as God would have us live, reflecting him and pouring it out to others. Now, one way to look at the law and the promise is that God as our Father is promising that we have an inheritance, and concerning his law, he's saying simply, since you are my children, loved and accepted by me already, the law is my standard for living. It's what's good for you, but you can't live up to that standard without me. My grace, my power, the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Word of God in our lives, and all that stuff will grow you over time into my likeness by convicting you via this standard. So what we find out is what Paul said is that the law is good. It's great. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's perfect, right? It originates from God, and it defines his standard of life. And we definitely attain to it. We want to walk. In, 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 in lockstep with the law, you know, as, as we go through life. Although we realize we can't do it perfectly. But we, we are never and were never meant to get our value by how, by how well we attain to it. Our value comes through our relationship to God, established only by His grace and through faith alone. That's it. But daily, it rem- the law reminds me of my need for Jesus and continually drives me back to grace, which has been from the very beginning of the whole, sto- whole story. It reminds me of, of, of the best way to live in life, right? 
So God, from the very beginning, established a relationship with us by grace through faith alone. The gospel was there well before Jesus, but it culminates in Jesus, doesn't it? That covenant promise is our blessing, reflecting Christ from the very beginning. But we have to let God finish the sentence, right? I'm blessing you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, to your neighbors right around your house right now. Have they heard the gospel? You know, we tend to think that people in America have heard the gospel. They haven't. They haven't. They've heard twisted stories. They've heard, like, like pop ideologies about it. But if they have not sat with a Christian and with the scriptures in front of them and have it laid out before them, they don't know the gospel. You know, to like we're to work towards the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, bringing about the fulfillment of that image of all nations worshiping Jesus in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, which we've looked at in recent weeks. All the various multi-ethnic people groups out there. But all unified under Christ, all wearing white robes and waving palm branches and shouting praises to him. This position with Christ, (laughs) the call, the purpose that we've received, along with the moral standards as outlined by God's law, are unifying us under Christ. They're all to unify us under Christ. And in light of the promises and the purposes that we've received from God, let's end by hearing again from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 7. Just listen to me. I don't turn there. Uh, just want you to listen to this. And it, he's urging us to live uh, worthy and in unity under Jesus. Listen to how much verbiage in here is about unity. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as a Christ apportioned it. Right? Then verses 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So knowledge of the Son of God is really important there, right? Unity in the faith is really important there. We become unified under the message of God, not under pop ideologies, not under what I feel to be true and right, but what God says is true and right, right? That's super important. And it's all a wonderful thought, right? It's all a wonderful thought. But as we've we've discussed in recent weeks, we are currently battling socio-cultural ideologies which threaten our gospel unity. There is so much pressure to agree with certain things that I outlined last week and weeks before that, man, are just so much like you could get fired for having your beliefs in Christ. You you could get fined for this. You know, you could, lots of things could happen. You could lose friendships over this. 
But there's all these socio-cultural ideologies which, which threaten our gospel unity, taking us away from the good message, which is the scriptures, the gospel message. And Paul knew this would happen, by the way. So he continues in verses 14 through 16 of Ephesians 4. He says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. I mean, do you feel like you can trust anything out there right now? I don't. I don't. Right? There is deceitful scheming. There is cunning craft, cunning and craftiness going on. We are, people are being blown back and forth because they are not rooted in the scriptures. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, we have to allow God to finish the sentence and to live out of the full orb of gospel grace and call, staying in in the game with all of our brothers and sisters together in unity, growing in the unifying knowledge of God from the Scriptures together. Our purpose is clear. The unified call to obedience, which comes from faith, as guided by, by what we learn in the Bible concerning what is morally right, just, and fair, under the leading of the Holy Spirit and the shared conviction of the church. And as a result of all this, Let's end today with this statement. We affirm the covenantal framework of the Bible. Abraham and the ethnic people of Israel were first blessed by God to be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth. And we deny that ethnicity is unimportant or that our goal is to become colorblind, ignoring race altogether. Rather, we, rather, the distinct cultures, colors, and languages of God's multi-ethnic church are both redeemed by the blood of Christ and preserved as such into eternity. Since this is God's will, we aim to be a growing multi-ethnic congregation representing the future kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Even so, our ultimate identity as Christians is most deeply rooted not in our race and national identity, but in our union together as one in the global body of Christ. Amen. Whew. I love that sermon. Love it. Love it. Love the whole message. Love every truth about that. I tend to think, oh, I did a pretty good job, if I say so myself. Anyway, but I, God bless you guys. I can't wait to be back together. If you want to come over, for, you know, hang out, Today, just hang out or bring some lunch or whatever. Come on over, 214 Lippicott Avenue in Ardmore. Um, we would like, love to have you. we got to clear out about 1.30 and finish it up because uh, i, I got to celebrate my daughter's birthday, my two daughters' birthday today. Uh, but I hope to see you if you want to come over. Uh, amen. Let me pray us out of this. Father God, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the fact that you are never, ever changing, that you all, you were the same back then as you are today, and then you will be in the future. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you are the one solid thing throughout all of history that we can hang our hat on, that we can come home to, that we can, we can 
we can stand on as a solid foundation. If I, bless you, bless your name. To you be all the glory. And I, I pray that your message will go out to all the nations. I pray that people would listen to this sermon and hear the gospel in it and that they would choose to give their life to Christ today. Amen, Father. Thank you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're certainly uh, free to stay on for a few minutes and chat if you'd like to. Um, But I am going to uh, log out. Amen.